Hello, critical thinkers. Welcome to this episode of the Healthy and Awake podcast, where today we are talking about bad arguments. Arguments like the earth is flat and other silly ideas and even some uh, contentious or controversial ideas that we're going to get into. Because if you look around today, it is clear that a lot of people, instead of critically thinking about arguments, they simply feel strongly about certain things and they misperceive those strong feelings as some kind of argument, uh, which is not how the world works. So this is a serious issue because arguments are how we make decisions. Arguments are what makes up the narratives in our head. Our, our conscious thought process can be thought of as a series of arguments. And so it's very important for a healthy person, a critical thinker to understand good arguments, bad arguments, how arguments are constructed, and what we can do to protect ourselves against bad arguments, and even further, how to make good arguments. So let's get into it. So as a health coach, this is something I deal with a lot, bad arguments and good arguments, because I, I see health coaching as a type of arguing. It's almost like a ninja level of arguing, because what we're trying to do as health coaches is to cause or provoke change in our clients, positive behavioral change. And so a direct approach, this wouldn't be a good health coaching approach, but one approach to trying to cause somebody to change. Let's say we're talking about smoking cigarettes, right? If I wanted to, to help somebody smoke cigarettes, one approach might be to put together the strongest argument. I can throw in their face, hey, you know, the smoking is bad for you. It, it kills you. It's expensive and all these different things. But does that work? We know that doesn't work. We know that strong arguments do not convince people to um, change their behaviors in certain ways. Uh, like in this example with smoking cigarettes. So then how is health coaching like arguing? Well, it's an exchange of ideas. It's very conversational. It's not like I'm standing next to them physically swatting the cigarettes out of their hands. That's not how it works. No, it's very much an exchange of ideas for almost like a, uh, I, I've heard this a few times recently, like the flip of a switch like through the conversation, through the dialogue, through the coaching, it's like a switch gets flipped and on their own, they can start doing the things that they've been trying to do. They can start working on their goals. They have the motivation. It's like something clicks. And so as health coaches, we have to be like ninjas because we have to be very careful not to give arguments like, hey, you should do this. Smoking is bad for you. You should. That's that doesn't work. So we actually have to say as little as possible to sort of pull the argument out of them. And they're making the argument for me, basically. If I want the, it's not really what I want. That's not how I should say it. But um, if we are working together to accomplish a certain goal, whether they're trying to put on muscle or change their diet or quit smoking, whatever it is, I'm never directly telling them they should do anything. It's, it's um, a very interesting type of argument 
And so I thought it'd be a good idea to start there with health coaching because very often you'll hear bad arguments for reasons to not change. I hear this every once in a while. Somebody, maybe they've been stuck. They want to lose weight and they've been stuck. And um, then we explore that a little bit through the coaching process. Why are you stuck? What have you tried? What's not working? What is working? And sometimes when people are articulating the things that are in their heads, sometimes they stumble upon the reality that they have been operating on bad arguments. Well, you know what? I realize it. So let me give an example. Uh, well, it's, it's the family. They, they need me. And, and so I'm just sacrificing my time. And, and my health and all this. Okay, that's, that's respectable. I understand that. Do you think your family would support you if you were trying to make health changes? Yeah, I think they would. Uh, they'd probably support me and they would help me. And um, Okay, all right. So what's, what are some goals? And so it's this big back and forth process. And, and every once in a while through that process, someone will realize, you know what? I guess I've been making a lot of excuses. You know, I've just been blaming, like it's my family. and. Uh, and, you know, me pointing it out sometimes help. I'll say, well, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of reasons not to change. I'm hearing that your family is a factor. I'm hearing that it's time. I'm hearing that it's this and that. You, you have a lot of reasons for not changing. What are some good reasons for changing? Um, and that sort of pulls out new arguments. It kind of kills the bad arguments that are in their head, the excuses that they might have been making up. And it brings out new arguments. They bring them out right? Because we're trying to explore that uh, from their perspective. Because everybody has a different experience in their heads. And um, even if I wanted to tell them what to do, which I don't, you know, I don't know what they know. I don't know what they've tried. And so that's why coaching can be a very complex process. But this episode goes beyond just the health coaching itself. Uh, I do want to get into arguing from a bunch of different perspectives. And when I talk about arguments, I'm not talking about like emotional yelling in people's, well, I guess that is part of it. But I, I mean, when I'm referring to arguments generally here, I mean, technical arguing, the exchange of ideas towards critical thinking and learning and knowledge. So yeah, yelling and the emotional stuff, that is part of it. Um, but we're trying to work against that. We don't want to be the ones emotionally yelling because that is the worst type of argument, the emotional appeal or the appeal to authority. Because when you think about it, arguing is something that is not just new because of social media and we can argue through the keyboard uh, on, online. Uh, arguing as a pursuit for knowledge has been going on for quite some time and perhaps the most notable example of it is ancient Greece where they, as part of their entire culture, would argue with each other for the deliberate pursuit of knowledge through argumentation. And they did it on, on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Now, obviously, that's what we do now. The, the landscape of argument has changed quite a bit where it's a lot of the value or, or a lot of the most important parts of arguing have been deteriorated thanks to social media platforms where you can operate with anonymity and you can get away with saying possibly reprehensible things with no repercussions. 
and you can attack people without any real intention of exchanging ideas. It can become a very adversarial experience and it can diminish the possibility of productive thinking. So the landscape is definitely different today and it is up to the individuals to take responsibility to argue better and to learn about arguments, not only so they can communicate their own ideas effectively, but so they can protect themselves against bad arguments. Because this is about seeking truth. That's why we argue. But sometimes we can convince ourselves that the ideas in our head are the infallible truth, and we can argue for the wrong reasons. We can argue to prove our point instead of for finding the truth, because very often we are wrong. I mean, all of us, including myself, are wrong about something. And quite honestly, it is foolish to just assume that you've got it all figured out. I mean, I just all throughout history are examples of people who think they have it figured out. And then things radically change. Things are always changing. And I think social media fuels some of this, these poor arguments, because a lot of it ties to identity, where people get their identity attached to arguments, where they just really, it becomes part of their being. And so if you attack those ideas, people feel like you're attacking them personally. Hey, don't be a bully. Don't, don't attack me. What are you talking about? I'm not attacking you. I'm asking questions about your idea, right? You can't put ideas out there and not expect somebody to ask questions about it. But that's what's going on in today's fragile, narcissistic social media society. Not everybody, but this is definitely a segment of the population. And a healthy society cannot function with such fragility or identity. It is a type of identity politics, this type of arguing in a way where you so closely identify with them, where it's basically, you are this argument. And I'm not going to be specific. You can figure out this isn't a political show. So I, I, I have to be careful with my words here. Um, but part of this also, it's not just social media. Part of it comes from the education system, I, at least the American education system. I've learned this since I was 13 years old. George Carlin woke me up to the perils of the American education system. And I'm so grateful that he woke me up to this because I was... Uh, I'm sure I caused my teachers a lot of frustration, but I challenged authority ever since I discovered his work. Because the education system, as far as I can tell, does not encourage critical thinking. It encourages memorizing and regurgitating information as well as appealing to authority. Trust what the teachers say, trust what the experts say, and then those teachers are just appealing to the higher authority figure. So very rarely does critical thinking actually take place in the American education system. And if you are in other parts of the world, I'd love to hear if you've had the same experience. I was looking at my data the other day and I saw that there are some people in uh, Germany, Bangladesh, Canada, a few other places. So hello to those people. Hello to everybody. And in case you did see this episode live yesterday, this is actually a rebroadcast. I'm, I'm rebroadcasting this live Yesterday, I watched the episode after I recorded it, which it was an hour and a half. It was a long episode. It's the same topic. And I was just so worked up. I had a lot of coffee. I've been really taking this show very seriously. I said to myself that I want to get to 100 episodes as quickly as possible. And right now, this is episode 10. 
Um, I, I wanted to get to 100 episodes by the beginning of the summer, which right now seems insane and not achievable. So I have to change my goal a little bit. Uh, but I'm the type of person where I get very laser focused, like a military operation. It's very easy for me to shut everything else out and and focus on one thing. And so for this show, because I'm trying to produce high quality content four or five days a week, which I've kind of been doing, um, I've been sacrificing my sleep, my exercise, and other aspects of my mental health and physical health. And as a healthy and awake person, I can't do that. That's uh, a bit hypocritical. And this is it's only been like two weeks of making those sacrifices. So life is about Life and health is about finding balance. So I'm going to practice what I preach and work on that balance. And um, yeah, just because yesterday I was so tense and it's hard to tell sometimes because I felt really sharp. I felt really on it. I had probably a little too much coffee. I feel much better now. But sometimes when I feel that sharp and I feel really on it, it can be... um, I don't know, it just feels good. Like I really felt articulate and like I was on it. And I was, I definitely was. But it was just too much. It, I, you know, I just came across as too uptight or whatever. But I digress. And it was just me. I couldn't even tolerate the sound of my own voice. Like I was just so worked up that it was just like my voice was so harsh. So I've I've gone through my protocol to chill myself the hell out. And this right now, this is sort of the pace that I'd like to keep for the show. Yesterday, I was going like twice as fast. Um, but I did mention earlier that that this idea of arguing and good arguments, bad arguments influence health coaching on many levels. So it influences how we conduct sessions with clients, but it also affects the clients individually because they have arguments that construct the thoughts in their head i mean i think as people very often we take for granted our lived experience we just accept everything as it is for reality when the actual reality is that our experience can be thought of as a series of narratives or stories or arguments in our head and this is something i'm not making this up this is from cognitive science i have the guy's name here uh jerome bruner is one example of many cognitive scientists who explore the relationship between cognition and psychology. And they talk about this idea of our thoughts in our head basically being narratives and arguments. And so whether you're a health coach or whether you're a healthy-minded person or a critical thinker, this topic is imperative for living a truthful life for living a healthy life and also to make informed decisions because we need to fully understand an argument before we can really make up our minds about it and sometimes we see part of an argument on tv we get one side and and it can be very convincing and it can seem very nice maybe even it makes us feel good it can be because there might be some bad ideas that have really good arguments for good causes like eugenics, for instance, there are people who are convinced by the arguments of eugenics where it's like, hey, we want to cleanse the gene pool and we want healthy genes. Who doesn't want healthy genes? And so bad arguments can often be very convincing. And so we have to be very careful because, of course, eugenics can be very dangerous and, and uh, get into genocidal territory. 
where it's like we want to eliminate the poor genetics. We don't want poor people. We don't want hungry any people, uh, hungry people anymore. We want to eliminate hunger, so we're going to kill all the poor people. <laughs> that's that's where that type of argumentation leads. Um, because the argument holds water. If you want to eliminate world hunger, well, one argument for that is to kill all the hungry people. And of course, that's not what I'm advocating for. I'm just highlighting bad arguments here. Because another argument would be to feed the hungry people. It seems like a much better argument. Um, but there are people out there, and it's not just stupidity, although low intellect is certainly a factor. And I don't mean that in a mean way. They're objectively speaking, low intellect people who can be more susceptible to bad arguments, but also people who are comfortable can be susceptible to bad arguments. This is what I refer to as intellectual laziness, where if you're very comfortable, you can just hear a very convincing, good sounding argument that might make you feel good. And you just roll with it. You don't really explore it any further. Maybe you trust the source. But here's the problem. Sometimes arguments can be done in bad faith. Sometimes censorship takes place and you don't have all the information. Because that's what's really necessary for informed decision making is having all the information to make your decision. And this yesterday, this is where things took a turn for the worse when I was recording this because I really, really got worked up and I got angry. And it, it is worth being angry about. So this idea of censorship, I have a two minute clip here from a congressional hearing that discusses with some of the Twitter executives the topic of censorship around a very controversial health and medical topic that has been going on for the past several years. And they discuss censorship that takes place. And I'm going to do better this time to control my anger. But um, let me know what you think, because this is worthy of anger. Everybody should be angry about this because this affects you and me. It affects everybody. So here we go. Two minute clip. Another example of what Twitter has done to censor folks is uh, from Dr. Martin Koldorf, a Harvard educated epidemiologist who once tweeted, COVID vaccines are important for high-risk people and their caretakers. Those with prior natural infection do not need it, nor children. The Twitter files reveal this tweet was deemed false information because it ran contrary to the CDC. So my first question this morning of Ms. Gaddy, may I ask of you, where did you go to medical school? I did not go to medical school. I'm sorry? I did not go to medical school. That's what I thought. Why do you think you or anyone else at Twitter had the medical expertise to censor a doctor's expert opinion? Our policies regarding COVID were designed to protect individuals. We were seeing you guys censored Harvard-educated doctors, Stanford-educated doctors, doctors that are educated in the best places in the world, and you silenced those voices. My next question is to the U.S. government. Oh, excuse me. I have another chart I want to show you, Ms. Gaddy. Um, I have another tweet by someone with a following of a full 18,000 followers. This person put a chart from the CDC on Twitter. It's the CDC's own data, so it's accurate by your standards. And you all labeled this as misleading. You're not a doctor, right, Ms. Gaddy? No, I'm not. Okay. What makes you think you or anyone else at Twitter have the medical expertise to censor actual, accurate CDC data. I'm not familiar with these 
particular situation. Yeah, I'm sure you're not. But this is what Twitter did. They labeled this as inaccurate. It is the government's own data. It's ridiculous that we're even having to have this conversation today. It's not just about the laptop. This is about medical advice that expert doctors were trying to give Americans because social media companies like Twitter were silencing their voices. Oh, man, that got me so angry yesterday. I was screaming almost at the top of my lungs because that is the definition of bad propaganda. That is dangerous to the extreme. That negatively affects society. I mean, this is all people have been talking about for the past three years. And a lot of people were very certain in their decision making. And now we know that there is good medical, scientifically founded reason to be skeptical about many of the claims that have been asserted over the past several years. This is this is the type of propaganda that people know to be bad. Because censorship is a type of propaganda. But let's let's take a step back. Let's get a little more foundational. So how can you understand arguments so that you can protect yourself? Well, first of all, to get as foundational as possible, there are multiple types of arguments. Maybe you've had a class in school, a debate class, rhetoric, maybe even philosophy. Even some acting classes cover this. Ethos, pathos, and logos. These are... Uh, on a general level, the different types of arguments that go as far back as ancient Greece. So ethos being ethics. This is like uh, appeal uh, to ethics. Pathos being emotions. Uh, it, it refers to pathetic, like in a technical definition. And logos being logic. So this isn't, uh, I don't want to go too in-depth into this because I try to keep the show as not boring as possible. And this is like, this is material from a classroom, right? So if you're interested in that, you can look, look up ethos, pathos, and logos. But to keep things more interesting, understand that everything is debatable. Everything is an argument. Words have been manipulated. Labels have been added, and that can shape people's thinking. You can stop thinking in many instances. So it's important to seek objective truth and think for yourself. And towards that pursuit, I have a few bad argument examples here. And uh, I was starting to get angry with some of these yesterday also. But I'm feeling good. I'm much more chill. Um, so let me actually start with one of the, literally one of the most chill ones here uh, for bad examples. This is kind of funny. If you've ever seen The Office, you know Michael Scott is like the idiot character on the show. And there's um there's a line in the show that he delivers that is a perfect example of a, a bad argument or or a misunderstanding of a type of argument in a sense. So I'm not gonna play the scene because I can't play copyrighted things, but I'll read the quote here. The scene is that Michael Scott is talking on the phone with one of his corporate superiors. And he's pushing back on whatever the, the person on the phone is saying. And he says, then we are just rewarding their bad behavior. Okay. Just imagine that instead of going to jail for murdering someone, you got an ice cream cone. If that were the case, then in the summertime, everyone would go around killing people for the pleasure of an ice cream cone. 
So I guess like by itself, that sounds funny, but this is actually a pretty cool joke because it's from a statistic that was popularized in the book Freakonomics. Uh, Freakonomics discussed different statistics uh, around economy. And I have it here. I have the description uh, from the book. One of the statistics was presented. uh, One of the statistics presented was a positive correlation between ice cream sales and the murder rate in a given area. So what that means is a positive correlation, meaning um, as ice cream sales went up, so did the murder rate. So this is normal. You can see these types of odd connections when you look at statistics. However, the authors cautions against interpreting this correlation as causal. So they were correlated. There's some link, but that doesn't mean one led to to the other. So again, the, the authors cautioned against interpreting this correlation as causal and argued that both variables were likely influenced by a third factor such as hot weather. So you see that it might seem if you were to say like, look, there's a correlation between ice cream sales and the murder rate. That means like Michael Scott, the idiot, like he thinks he goes, well, if if ice cream is going up, well, and murder rate is going up, obviously ice cream sales going up led to the murder rate. That's one argument based on the statistical data. But the argument presented by the actual statisticians, they say, well, no, 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 look, there's this other variable over here that you have to look at, which is hot weather. So as hot weather goes up, so does ice cream sales and so does murder. Those two are mutually exclusive. It's the weather that ties them all together. So when hot weather goes up, people want ice cream more. But also when hot weather goes up, people are a little more frustrated. And if they're already prone to murdering somebody, well, the hot weather is going to make it more likely that they'll murder somebody. So I understand that for some people, this might be a little bit complex and and this isn't the most fun topic to explore statistics. Um, But you can see how not only it can be easy to be fooled by arguments like Michael Scott, where he sees, well, hey, it looks pretty clear that one, this is causing this thing. Um, but it's also very difficult to just think about these things. It's much easier to just accept what, what the thing looks like, to accept how things seem. But it takes much more effort, like the statisticians, to go, well, it can't be that ice cream is causally related to murder. That can't be. So let's explore this a little further. That argument doesn't make sense. What is it? Oh, it's weather. That's a much better argument. So if this is a topic of interest to you, there's a really good book called How to Lie with Statistics. Uh, It sounds like a nefarious book, but it's actually just a clever marketing title because how the hell do you sell a book on statistics? It's not something that people are eager to read necessarily. Um, But the theme of the book is that if you're not careful with reading certain statistics, things can be manipulated and you can make very strong arguments with numbers that are based in falsehoods. And the comp- the pharmaceutical companies are very good at this. Um, if you're looking to read up on that, uh, there's a really good book called Farmageddon by Dr. David Healy that goes really deep into some of the statistical shenanigans that the pharmaceutical companies take part in. But if you don't want to read an entire book, one of the things that he heavily discusses in that book is something called Study 329. That is a great example of uh, pharmaceutical shenanigans where with 
SSRI antidepressants, that's selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants that are still commonly used to this day for depression. Uh, there was a lot of um, lying with statistics that included hiding data or bending the numbers a little bit to hide the fact that these SSRI drugs caused more harm than the pharmaceutical companies originally presented. Um, and that's important because if people had all the information, they can make informed decisions and maybe they would decide otherwise. Maybe the doctors would better understand the reality of the situation. Maybe they wouldn't be as prescribed as they are. And uh, I'm not here to talk about the incentive structures for pharmaceutical companies to break the rules because all they have to do is pay some little fine after they make billions of dollars selling drugs off the backs of innocent victims who get harms from these drugs. I'm not here to talk about that. Um, but I just wanted to throw that out there as something worth thinking about because companies can make very strong arguments when data are involved. For the past three years, you've been hearing trust the science, trust the science. Most people have no idea what that really means. Uh, most of what has been practiced over the several uh, the past several years is scientism, which is this it's basically treating the idea of science like a type of religion that is kind of infallible. And that is what has been practiced. Scientism has been practiced, not science, because science involves skepticism and scrutiny and challenging the beliefs, challenging the status quo. It is always, um, I don't believe what you are telling me. Let me go ahead and challenge it. Or I don't even believe my own ideas. Let me go ahead and try to prove them wrong. And when I fail to prove them wrong, I will strongly indicate that I am correct. That is the proper scientific method, as opposed to this confirmation bias that takes place with scientism, where it's like, I think that masks work. Let me go ahead and look for studies to prove that I'm right. And there we go. When the reality is there are a lot of studies, just to pick an example, masks, I'm not, you know, we're not here to talk about masks, but um, a, a true scientifically oriented person would look for the studies that say, hey, maybe masks don't work for the current circumstances, which is the case. I wrote a whole article back uh, at the very beginning of what, what has been going on using a strong scientific argument to make my case. So I substantiated my argument with evidence, um, which is what we should do. So if you want to check that out, you can head to my Substack. You can find it at mikemira.com. But let's let's lighten things up a little bit. Let's talk about some of the silly arguments that might take place. Just to highlight the power of arguments. One of them here is the earth is flat. You do hear this uh on certain corners of YouTube. And this this really bubbled up during the pandemic when people were locked up in their homes. Mental health was probably at its all-time low throughout the entire country. And when that sort of thing happens, it can be very easy to find oneself vulnerable to bad arguments like the idea that the earth is flat, especially when you're hypnotized with uh, the music and a soft voice and the charts and the graphs and people who present themselves as experts and very strong, uh, well-articulated arguments from charismatic people. This is called propaganda. And that's exactly what happened. You have people who are now in clubs who believe the earth is flat. They meet from all over the globe, pun intended. And um, let's get into the arguments. So we have, I have an argument here from, I had ChatGPT help me construct 
strongest arguments possible for certain categories that we're going to get into. So here's a case for the Earth being flat. The Earth appears to be flat to the naked eye as the curvature of the planet is not visible from a human's limited perspective. Additionally, many photographs and videos claim to show the Earth's curvature can easily be explained as being distorted by camera lenses or other factors. Furthermore, the idea of a flat Earth has been supported by various cultures throughout history and is still upheld by a small but vocal group of individuals today who argue that there is a vast conspiracy to cover up the truth about the Earth's true shape. So that's just one paragraph, but I really mean it. If you go on YouTube, as somebody who's obsessed with arguments and, and language, um, I watched some of these videos just to see how people can even be convinced by these ideas. And uh, they can be pretty powerful. And um, if you let your guard down, maybe you're a little tired, you might find yourself being convinced or at the very least starting to question what you know as reality, which is a good thing. We should always question our own beliefs and ideas and, and question certain realities. But we also have to be careful not to be crazy, paranoid people who get carried away with clearly inaccurate ideas. So let's talk about the case for the Earth being flat. There is overwhelming scientific evidence that supports the fact that the Earth is a sphere. This evidence includes photographs and videos from space, which clearly show the Earth's curvature, as well as measurements of shadows during lunar eclipses that indicate the Earth's roundness. Additionally, satellite technology and global positioning systems, GPS, would not work as they do if the Earth were flat. The flat earth theory also fails to explain many observable phenomena such as the changing positions of stars at different latitudes or the way that ships appear to sink as they travel farther away. Okay, so I'm not here to think for you. I gave you both sides of the argument. It's up to you. Let me know what you think. Is the earth flat or not? This will help me gauge my audience. Let's make it a little more ludicrous. Uh, let's highlight the power of an argument a little bit more with an even sillier argument in case maybe you are convinced by the idea that the earth is flat. Let's make it something that nobody has argued. Well, may, somebody maybe, but, but for the most part, this is not a popular argument. The idea that the sky is green. Bet you never heard that one. Unless maybe you live in a psych ward because nobody thinks the sky is green. We all accept that the sky is blue. So let's see if I can convince you that the sky is green. Here we go. The sky is green, and it always has been. The blue color that we perceive is simply an illusion created by the refraction of sunlight as it passes through the Earth's atmosphere. If you look closely at the sky, especially during sunrise and sunset, you can see hints of green and other colors that are normally hidden from view. In fact, there is plenty of scientific evidence to support the idea that the sky is green. Studies have shown that certain wavelengths of light are absorbed by the atmosphere, causing the remaining light to appear green to the human eye. Additionally, many ancient cultures and mythologies describe the sky as green, and there is even a famous painting by Vincent van Gogh titled Starry Night that depicts a green sky. So why do we continue to believe that the sky is blue? It's a matter of social conditioning and culture bias cultural bias. From an early age, we are taught that the sky is blue, and we accept this as fact without questioning it. But if we open our minds and we truly look at the world around us, we can see that the sky is truly 
a beautiful shade of green. It's pretty powerful. I actually didn't produce an argument for the idea that the sky is blue. I thought it would be self-evident. Um, but as always, it's up to you. What do you think? All right, let's get into I think I have uh, one more here that is related to health. This is an argument that you've been seeing more and more. It's coming out of the World Economic Forum. And it's this idea of eating bugs. So the World Economic Forum is pumping out propaganda videos telling you that you need to eat bugs. This is the way. This is the future. And you're going to love it. Why would you want to do that? Well, it's cheap, it's sustainable, and there's protein. Those are the three main arguments around eating bugs. Now, it does require a lot of propaganda because most people, especially in America, aren't exactly thrilled about the idea of chowing down on some crickets. So what do they do? They, they throw videos in your face on YouTube with neat corporate elevator type music and smiling people eating bugs, high-fiving each other. Just like the pharmaceutical ads when somebody has like diarrhea and they're riding a bike with the biggest smile on their face. You know, they, they have to package it up somehow. But what are the cons of eating bugs? Um, well, because it is so cheap, it is easy for mega corporations to make a lot of money while selling you shit food. Um, and I mean that kind of literally because these bugs can accumulate diseases and parasites and toxic accumulation. And perhaps even more important is the fact that the exoskeleton of many of the bugs that they're trying to put in our food contain a component known as chitin, C-H-I-T-I-N. And this is not something that is well digested by humans. We have a tough time digesting it, which could lead to inflammation, gut inflammation, which can cause other problems. It could possibly lead to uh, gut hyperpermeability, also known as leaky gut, which can cause an, another whole host of problems. So as usual, these companies do not give a shit about your health. They care about their money, but they will tell you that it's healthy for you with convincing arguments because people are convinced by this. And I'm not telling you what to eat. If you want to eat bugs, by all means. But there are some concerns. There are some health concerns. So I'm starting to wind down here. I, all I really have left is what you can do to account for this. What you can do to improve your arguments and protect yourself against bad arguments. But first, there's a problem that, that goes on around this. And it's people telling you to stay in your lane. You can only argue about whatever you're an expert in. That's all you can argue about. And, you know, there is some truth to that. There's a little bit. If a medical doctor has gone through years of credentialing and training and experience, it qualifies them to understand things in a certain way. But at the same time, that exact indoctrination process that qualifies them to do certain things can also limit thinking. And I'm not being derogatory or mean by saying this. I mean, by definition, the training or indoctrination that someone goes through to become some kind of expert, it narrows your focus on what you are learning in order to accomplish a specific skill set. That's the whole reason in this example that someone even goes to medical school in the first place. So those types of people understandably might say, hey, leave the medical stuff to me. 
But we know, based on the past few years, we're starting to see now more and more people are starting to accept that maybe these experts are not infallible. Maybe some scrutiny and skepticism and challenging authority is the most optimal way to ensure that we're getting all the information and making the best decisions. And to be more specific, there's a reason for that. Uh, this, there might be other names for it, but I refer to it as the closeness problem. When you are an expert in a certain topic, you can be so close to that problem that you can't even see the full picture. For instance, let's say I have a problem with my hand. I want to examine my hand and I have it directly in front of my eyeballs. It is all the way up against my face. This is the closeness problem. I cannot actually see my hand because it's all the way up against my face. I'm too close to the problem. So I need to take a step back so I can actually take a good look. And so sometimes the experts are able to do that to sort of chill out a little bit and see things from a different perspective. But very often it's outsiders who can offer a different perspective. And that's what you've been seeing for the past few years. Actually, the doctors have been making quite a few mistakes, many of them. And it's other people like nurses or other types of whistleblowers entering the picture saying, hey, something's not right here. But I'm realizing now I skipped one. I wanted to go back to this. We talked about the sky is green and bugs and ice cream leading to murder. There is this pretty reprehensible argument that's being put out there to attack exercise. I don't know if you've seen this. This gets my blood boiling because my master of science degree is in exercise science and health promotion. The science and evidence that exercise is healthy can help with body composition, including building muscle and weight loss, fat loss. Oops. Got to remember to turn off my phone before these recordings. But the, the research is crystal clear. I doubt there is any topic in science that is more clear than the idea that a proper diet and regular exercise is healthy, is physically and mentally healthy for any human on the planet because it's been studied in all different populations. However, there are arguments being put out there on the mainstream media like this one. If you're watching, you can see here from Time Magazine, the white supremacist origins of exercise and six other surprising facts about the, the history of U.S. physical fitness. Time Magazine. Okay, Mike, come on. That's just one article from some asshole. That doesn't mean anything. Um, oh, wait, what's this? MSNBC? The far right's obsession with fitness is going digital? This is an opinion article that says why the far right is really into home fitness. Huh. Okay, well, that's just two examples. That doesn't mean anything. What about, oh, wait, hold on. This is from the Daily Mail. Controversial expert is appointed to the Biden food panel after claiming that obesity can't be treated with exercise and a good diet because it's genetic. And this person will now tell Americans what to eat. All right, well, you heard it here, folks. Don't exercise, don't eat healthy. These are the people that you should listen to to make your health decisions. It's, it's actually all of this 
talk about exercise being good for you is misinformation and propaganda. Exercise is a far-right conspiracy. If you exercise, you're basically the alt-right and you're racist. Do you believe that? Do you see what's going on? I don't know. I'm not saying there is anything going on, but this seems worthy of asking some questions like, what the hell is going on? What is this shit? It's okay, though. You can think for yourself. Oh, wait. Hold on. What's this? No, you shouldn't. This is a opinion article from the New York Times. This is from February 18th, 2021. The title is Don't Go Down the Rabbit Hole. Critical thinking, as we're taught to do it, isn't helping in the fight against misinformation. All right, you heard it. If you have any opposition to the idea that exercise might be uh, good, if, if you think that exercise might be good for you, please shut up. Don't think for yourself. We are telling you that exercise is racist and you are alt-right. And this coincides with the body positivity movement, which I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying they are coinciding. There are a lot of messages out there on TV saying just accept your fat body for how it is. And again, I'm not saying anything. I'm not expressing my opinion. I'm just saying that that's one of the messages on TV. This has an effect on society. When you tell people that exercise is a conspiracy theory and that uh, being clinically obese has no negative health effects, that's an argument. That's a very poor argument because it's based in uh, not facts. But, you know, someone will be convinced by that. So what can we do? What can we do to not be convinced by shitty ideas? like that. Well, first of all, challenge yourself. Understand that feeling strongly isn't the same as a strong argument. And actually, usually when you feel very strongly and you find that your emotions are heightened, that could be a good sign that you don't have a strong argument. Strong arguments should stand on their own. Strong arguments don't require you getting worked up and emotional and raising your voice. A good argument is simply a good argument. So challenge yourself, question your beliefs. I guarantee you, me included, something that you believe is wrong. Ask yourself where you got your ideas from. It is foolish to think that propaganda has not affected you. I saw a poll on LinkedIn that somebody asked, do you think propaganda has affected you? 50% of the people said no. Which even if you're aware of propaganda, that's impossible. It is just impossible. Propaganda is the propagation of information. If you've ever used your cell phone and scrolled through social media, you have been exposed to propaganda. That I'm sure has affected you on some level. It doesn't have to just be political. If you support any political cause of any kind, whatever side of the aisle you are on, that is because of propaganda. And I literally mean, if you support any political candidate, whether it's red or blue, part of what allowed you to even come up with the idea to support that candidate is propaganda. So yes, you have been 
affected by propaganda. And so in order to protect yourself, you have to first accept that reality and question your beliefs. Is this idea that I have in my head, is this correct? Where did it even come from? Is this my own idea? Or did somebody influence me to believe this? For a lot of people, they're, they're not going to put in that effort. Most people will not put in that effort. But if you want to be as sharp and truthful and healthy mentally as you possibly can be, this is sort of mandatory. Like you wouldn't just invite computer viruses onto your computer because it takes away from the health and integrity of the computer. Well, your brain, your mind is very much like a computer with software. Keep away those viruses, which can be thought of as bad ideas. So what else? Be authentic. So having a true understanding of yourself and your purpose allows you to conduct arguments that are coming from a place of truth instead of maybe you have your sense of identity tied to a certain argument. That's not authentic. Like if you just identify with a group, because like group politics can be thought of as a type of argument. Like this group over here is the superior group. It's not thought of that explicitly. There's like some subconscious arguments, right? So arguments can be conscious. I believe this because of X, Y, and Z, and I am saying it out loud. But our many of our motivations are unconscious. And when I talked earlier about cognitive psychology, saying that the thoughts in our head can be thought of as narratives or arguments, well, those things can be un unconsciously motivating our behavior. And when we find ourselves attached to some kind of group, that can be thought of as a type of argument in the head. So being authentic can sort of help you prevent falling victim to those identity politics or, or other means of implanting ideas that might not be you operating in a truthful way. And you see this a lot with virtue signaling. That is a big red flag of somebody who is just the victim of a type of parasite type of argument that sort of latches onto the brain. And it's not even them talking. It's really just like a regurgitation of talking points. Uh, again, whatever side you are on, on the political aisle, this happens on both sides of politics with this virtue signaling and, and aggressively asserted agendas. When you see this in politics, when people are virtue signaling and they're saying, hey, look, this is a really good cause that I believe in. And if you don't believe it either, you're a bad person. That's, that's a type of argument. And it usually indicates a lack of, of actual support, like an unsupported argument, because it's usually an emotional appeal, an appeal to authority. And that's fine. And if you're able to understand arguments, not only can you protect yourself against these sorts of things, but you can also poke holes in, in their arguments. Not necessarily for fun, although it can definitely be fun to push those people's buttons. Um, but more specifically, to help in a cooperative way to find the truth. Because we're talking about arguing. This should be done cooperatively. And so one way to help with making it cooperative is active listening. So one thing that many of us do when we're arguing with somebody in, in, in a very civil way, even like a technical argument, like a debate or a conversation, is sometimes we're just waiting for them to shut up so that we can say what we want to say. 
that means we're not listening. We're not allowing space in our heads for their ideas to sort of roll around. That is very common. Most people do that because most people don't make an effort to listen. Now, as a health coach, part of our training, most of our training is to help us listen more because we just have a tendency. I don't know if it's cultural or what, but we just have a tendency to not really listen. And so one way, this is something that health coaches do all the time. It feels very unnatural at first, but it feels more natural over time. And nobody really notices that you're doing it. It's called reflective listening. So let's say we're having a conversation and you're telling me, you know, I, I just want to lose some weight and I'm going to do that um, because I've just had it. I have to lose some weight. I'll just reflect it back. Oh, okay. So like uh, you want to lose some weight, you've had it. And, and so you're going to do something about it. Like, yep, exactly. This accomplishes two things. It allows them to hear their thoughts, which can be very powerful because sometimes we don't listen to our own thoughts, but it also indicates that you're listening. It shows like, oh, they, they're actually listening to what I'm saying because I just repeated it back. And again, it might sound silly or feel unnatural and you might think, well, they're just going to feel like I'm repeating like a parrot, repeat their words back. Well, you have to do it strategically. You can't just repeat back every single thing they say, but it can be a good way to show that you are listening. Um, especially if you are uh, making an argument, if you're trying to make a case or understand their case a little better, instead of just waiting for them to stop talking so you can go, no, you're not right. This is why, this is why I'm right. Be cooperative. It, it makes for a much better experience because the purpose shouldn't be to argue to assert your correctness. It should be to find the truth. So reflective listening is something that's very powerful. It's something that's changed my life and improved every relationship I've ever had. But what else can you do? What's another tool or tactic that you can use to improve your own arguments? There's a book called Thank You for Arguing. That's one of the best books ever written. Um, so if you want to improve your communication skills, that's something I read every single year because it's so powerful. Uh, it's, it's beyond just understanding arguments. Like I said, the arguments are, are what are happening in your head. So it really is a book on improving how you can think. And if you're a health coach, especially, it can help you understand how your clients think. Uh, it really can allow you to see the world in a different way. But one of the favorite arguments of the author is called conceding the argument, which basically means agreeing with the other party. So let's say we're talking about the sky. I'm talking with somebody and, and uh, they're saying the sky is green and I'm saying the sky is blue. Well, one thing I could do to disarm them and ease them up a little bit is agree with them and say, hey, you know, I, I hear you. I can see how you the sky might be green. But would you hear me out on this? Let me make my case. And so it disarms them. This happens in sales all the time, right? Maybe you're talking to a sales guy and, and you're like, oh, man, I hate this guy. I don't want to buy anything. And you tell him like, oh, I'm not here to buy anything today. And I, I just want to look. And I'm, what do they do? The good ones will say, oh, I hear you. You don't want to buy anything today. All right. So they reflect it. They do the reflective listening and they agree with you and they can see the argument. It's very powerful. So conceding the argument is a really cool tactic. And, and that's just one out of the many, many different types of arguments in that book. Thank you for arguing. I highly recommend it. Another thing you can do is be around people you disagree with more. I know people who are incredibly fragile because like mentally fragile because they surround themselves only with people who share the same ideas that they have. Um, usually these are the types of people who feel very strongly. Every idea that they have is not moderate. It's just extreme. They're very in your face about it. Uh, these are the types of people, um, 
I think there's something to that. Like because they're so extreme about it, it's like a fragile house of cards, right? They have to keep building their house of cards with other people around them who agree with them and they feel kind of protected. Wow, this house of cards is looking pretty tall. But the second anybody starts to question their arguments, the house of cards starts to tumble and you see them acting erratically. I have like 10 different people in my head I can see as I'm saying this, and maybe you do too, because many of us have at least one of them, even in our own families. Somebody where it's like, you just try to talk a little bit of logic and reason and ask questions politely. Hey, you know, you're saying this thing over here, but the reality is this, or have you considered that? Or maybe you're wrong about this. Are you willing to explore that? And they, they attack you, they get angry, they raise their voice. Um, so that's one thing you can do to protect yourself is be aware of ad hominem attacks. If somebody shifts from talking about the ideas themselves and they start attacking your character, it's not worth talking to those people. It's also not worth talking to those people if they have no intention of actually learning or, um, you know, exchanging in fair dialogue. Cause very often people are just there, like we said, to shove an agenda down your throat and they have no intention of listening to anything you say. Well, what's the point of talking to those types of people? You might feel very strongly too. You might feel like you have the truth, but if they're not even listening, it's a waste of time to talk to those people. Even if you can see the argument and you do your reflective listening, some people just, they just want to believe what they believe. And that's sad, but we can only control ourselves. Some people will claim to be open-minded while also not considering any ideas at all that go outside of what they already think. Okay, so beyond those tactics, here are a few final things you can do, and then we're going to end this episode. Reading and learning. So earlier we mentioned thank you for smoking and how to lie with statistics, but if you feel passionate about a certain argument, you should understand not only the argument you have, but you should understand the opposition. Uh, this is something I see time and time again of people, especially young people, because they're the passionate ones, they're the revolutionaries, they have some idea. Uh, about something they feel very strongly, some political issue, and they assert it with the most passion they can. But that passion, that high passion, that high feeling and emotion does not mean a strong argument. So understand your argument in its entirety, but also seek to prove yourself wrong, because maybe you are. Understand what your opponent might say. So I've had even in the past two years, maybe like 30 discussions with different people, 30 di different people, um, because you hear millennials talking about communism more and more. And that's not what this show is about. I'm not here to talk about politics. Um, but what I do find in talking to those people is they have uh, many arguments and many points to support their case, but they don't have any understanding of other arguments outside their case. They just have ideas that they feel very strongly about that seem to make sense to them. And maybe in some instances, they do make some sense. But they can't just stand on their own like that. So you, you poke at it a little bit. That house of cards starts to crumble. You find out that they actually don't really know what they're talking about. They only know the talking points from the YouTuber that they watched or from the one book that they read. That doesn't work. And those people are very easily... Uh, proven wrong because many of those people, you know, they have this false sense of correctness. If you find yourself feeling very correct about a certain subject, that's a big red flag. Okay, what else? Writing is something that you can do is a powerful way to organize the thoughts in your head. So if you have a strong feeling or a strong argument, 
writing is a way to externalize the thoughts in your head. You can literally take what is in your head, put it on paper. It is now more tangible and it allows you to manipulate it more easily because it can be difficult to sort of contend with ideas just in our head. But when we put it on paper and we can look at it and read it and connect it to other ideas and move things around and expand and cut, we can make our ideas stronger, more concise and effective. And we can also improve our critical thinking skills. And then we also have something that maybe, hey, we start a blog or a podcast or something like that because we've practiced organizing our thinking and um, we feel like we have strong arguments, at least confidence enough to make arguments and be okay in the possibility that I might be wrong because there is strength in that. You can also practice arguing. I already said be around people who maybe you disagree with a little bit more, but now with the development of AI technology like ChatGPT, you can literally tell it to be an expert and to argue with you. So if you're trying to argue about, let's say you are uh, against certain global warming policies, well, you can say to ChatGPT, I want you to be a global warming or a climate change expert, and I'm going to make my case and I want you to push back. And so you can start to find holes in your argument. And I mean, if you're arguing with somebody who kind of feels like an expert in a certain field and you get to argue with that person, well, that's going to improve your skills. You can understand their side a little better. Uh, Chat GPT is pretty incredible for that sort of thing. But finally, this is the last point here. Be skeptical, be vigilant, question everything. So don't just, you know, read something, question what you read. Skepticism is extremely important. It is healthy. It can prevent death, especially when you think of what's been going on for the past few years, certain medical inventions, uh, interventions. Uh, many people have experienced serious harms from these types of medical interventions. And so skepticism can possibly save your life. So always be skeptical, challenge authority, find the truth, challenge your own ideas, work towards building anti-fragility and building mental strength. And always welcome challenges to one's own ideas as seeking a sign of seeking truth, a sign of seeking truth. So challenge your ideas constantly, but also welcome challenges to your own ideas. So that's it. I guess aside from the fact that make sure to check out my website, mikevira.com, you know that I'm a board certified health coach. So I've gone through the training and credentials, and I have the experience. You can even see the reviews on my website, which you can find at mikevira.com. I also have my health coaching program. If you want to improve your health in any way, and you feel like you know what you should do, but it can be paralyzing because of all the misinformation and propaganda out there, well, my course, Red Pill Your Health, offers all the fundamental foundational information that allows you to make the best decisions around your health. And if that program, if that course still is not enough, if you buy the premium program, you will have access to me and or other health coaches, other board certified health coaches. I'm trying to add some variety there. We're in a group setting. You can get personalized answers to your questions, group coaching, you can meet other critical thinkers, other healthy and awake people. But that's not all. I have plenty of stuff on the website. Even if you don't want to buy the program right now, I have my free Substack. You can uh, subscribe to this podcast. You can like and share. And by the way, I will have shareable clips on the way very shortly. 
Uh, I know uh, that's a good way to get more of this content. Maybe you aren't listening to these entire episodes, which is fine, um, but I will have shorter clips from these episodes coming soon. So please tell your friends, please leave a comment, please let me know what you thought about this episode, what you want to see next. And other than that, stay healthy and stay awake. <laughs> I'm not the worst thing.